Good morning, Christ Prez. We're continuing our series in First and Second Samuel. Two weeks ago, we found David hiding out in caves on the run from a murderous King Saul. And a lot has happened since then. While David was in hiding, the Philistines attacked Israel again. But this time, Saul and his army could not hold them back. And so First Samuel ends with a lot of blood and violence. Saul's son, Jonathan, is killed. And then Saul takes his own life on the battlefield. And it's all very tragic and a very low moment for Israel. But it's also a moment of God-ordained transition. With Saul dead, the way opens up for David to become the official king. So as 2 Samuel begins, David is slowly beginning to rebuild unity in Israel after a season of terrible division and conflict. All of that culminates here in chapter 5 as David becomes king over a unified Israel, and Jerusalem is established as the capital of the new kingdom. So this is a story of building unity. It's a story about a king who unites. Let's, let's uh, read together 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Hear the word of God. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people, Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As a pastor, I rarely get to worship with other congregations, but I do get to develop friendships with other pastors in our city. And so I often get to hear from them about how their congregations are doing. These are congregations from different denominations of different sizes with different worship styles. And in conversations with pastors over the last several months, one common theme, one thing they all report is that tensions within their congregations uh, have increased, that there's been more conflict than usual, more division, and people have left. Why? Well, it's interesting. Not one of these pastors has changed their doctrinal views. None has changed their understanding of Scripture's authority or the centrality of the gospel or the truth of the Trinity or the supremacy of Jesus as Lord overall. None of them has, has stopped preaching the good news about Jesus. None of them denies the reality of the resurrection. They can all still affirm the creed without crossing their fingers. None of that has changed. What has changed? Our context. Think of what we've experienced together over the past 18 months. A pandemic. A bitterly polarizing and divisive presidential election racial unrest, economic insecurity. And all of this has put an extraordinary strain on the unity of the church. It has become more difficult for Christians to stay unified. You know, Jesus longs for his people to be unified. One of the last things Jesus prayed before he was arrested is, is for the unity of his people. May they be one, Father, as you and I, as you are in me and I am in you. See, Jesus lived for it. He died for it. He rose for it. He said his mission depends on it. 
Our witness to the gospel is only credible to the extent that we maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So in a time as polarized as ours, we need unity more than ever. And yet it's so challenging. There is so much in the world, in our lives, and in our hearts that undermines unity in the church. What do we do in the face of such conflict and division? See, our passage this morning offers wisdom about unity. It shows us, shows us that in the face of all that would divide us, we find unity not in our common backgrounds, not in common preferences, not in common ideas or ideologies, but rather in submission to a common king. And so as the dust settles from a terrible 20 years of conflict and division in Israel, David begins to labor for unity. Let's look at three ways he does this. He laments what is lost, he repairs what is broken, and then he gathers around a new center. Okay, so first he laments what is lost. You know, something surprising happens in the beginning of 2 Samuel. Remember, for a long time, David had been the target of Saul's ire. Saul has thrown spears at him. He's forced him into hiding. He's hunted him down like an animal. It's not an exaggeration to say that Saul is David's worst enemy. And so you'd think that when Saul is finally dead and David can end his cave dwelling and rise to the throne, he would be elated. But instead, something remarkable happens. In chapter one, when David gets the news that Saul is dead, instead of rejoicing, instead of rushing to grab the throne, the very first thing David does is lament. He grieves. He names the enormous loss for his people. In the last half of chapter one, we get a powerful and passionate lamentation from David um, over Israel's loss. And it includes lines like this, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. See, instead of rushing forward to grab the throne, David takes time to stop and to acknowledge the loss, to publicly lament and grieve the deaths of Saul and Jonathan. The Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann writes this, quote, this poem marks a deep, precious, and hurtful moment in the life of Israel. For the length of the song, at least, all the dangerous ambiguity of David's future is bracketed out. There is a moratorium on power for the full honoring of grief. Such poetry serves to give the community time, space, and means whereby to treasure and relinquish." Close quote. See, David names what is lost, and it's not just that he needs this, the community needs this in order to be able to move forward in unity. There needs to be time and space given to lament. You know this, when someone has experienced something really traumatic, the tendency is always to stuff it, to avoid it, not to think about it. Just put it behind you and, and don't give it any attention. But any good therapist will tell you that to ignore the trauma and to stuff the pain is to actually give it greater power, to multiply its harm. By naming it, by grieving it, and allowing yourself to experience the emotion of it, you open up space for healing, for light to flood in. And so this is the surprising first step that David takes toward building unity in his community, he names and laments what is lost. 
See, isn't there wisdom here for us to, to recognize that unity is not found by glossing over the past and rushing forward to some future we hope will be better? It's not found by pretending that things are fine when things are actually not fine. I mean, this is not a kumbaya kind of unity achieved by holding hands around a campfire. No, David begins by telling the truth about the past. He grieves the death and division that the kingdom has experienced. He begins with lamentation. And in doing so, he creates space for healing. Instead of ignoring the pain or pretending like the division doesn't exist, we invite God into those places of sorrow and loss, and we give God the opportunity to do his work of healing. Where loss is genuinely grieved, newness can flow. That's the first thing David did, and we can do that too. We can name and grieve what is lost. We can lament. Second, David repairs what is broken. You know, in ancient times, it was a common practice of kings to completely destroy their rivals in order to establish their own throne. If you want to ensure the future of your reign, it helps to eliminate the most obvious threats. Who else might want the throne? Take them out as quickly as possible. What David does is remarkable. See, he didn't seek to take out Saul and Saul's family. Instead of moving against his rivals, we, we actually see him grieving their deaths, and we see him taking action against those who delighted in their deaths. Do you remember how the story unfolds? In chapter two, after David has lamented, he and his men, they go up to Hebron where David is anointed king over the house of Judah. Then David reaches out to the men of Jabesh Gilead with a word of blessing. Now, who are these people? These were Saul's men. These were the people whose loyalty was with the very one who tried to kill David over and over and over again. But now David blesses them and he offers them peace. See, he's seeking to repair the relationship with them. He's seeking unity. But unfortunately, it's not that simple. While David has been anointed king over Judah, Abner, the commander of Saul's army, has gone ahead and made Saul's son, Ishbosheth king over all the other tribes of Israel. So, so Israel is now divided under two kings, David, who is king over Judah, and Ishbosheth, who is over the other tribes. Well, Joab, the leader of David's army, begins to take things into his own hands, and he goes out and he starts to fight with Abner the leader of um, Saul's army, now Ishbosheth's army. So now there's war between the tribes. In chapter three, verse one, we read this. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. These are God's people fighting against themselves. You know, David writes in the Psalms, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Well, this is not that. There's nothing good and pleasant about tribal warfare. Eventually, Abner and Saul's son Ishbosheth, um, Ish they have a falling out, and Abner decides that he is going to align himself with David and help David get the throne. So he meets with David, and David sends him away in peace, which is extraordinary. David has successfully made peace with the commander of uh, his enemy's army. Just how extraordinary this is gets highlighted by the contrast between David and Joab. Remember, Joab this whole time has been the commander of David's army. Abner um, is Joab's enemy. David makes peace with Abner. Joab's response is more natural and typical. He calls for a meeting with Abner, and when Abner shows up, Joab kills him. 
See, Joab pursues peace by eliminating his enemies. David pursues peace by turning his enemies into friends. David would prepare a feast for Abner and his men. Joab would sooner see them all killed. See, consistently, rather than consolidate his power and eradicate those who were formerly against him, we see David seeking to make covenants, to to repair broken relationships, and create new pathways of peace. See, what wisdom is there for us here? You know, tribal warfare isn't a thing of the past. The Pew Research Service has tracked polarization over many years and found that our mutual contempt continues to spread. Over 90% of Republicans and 86% of Democrats um, hold unfavorable or very unfavorable views of the other party, um, almost triple their percentage from a generation ago. Another study found that 20% of Democrats and 15% of Republicans reported thinking that, quote, the country would be better off if large numbers of members of the other party simply died, close quote. Now that is jarring, but it's also so human. I mean, that is the Joab spirit right there. In fact, you could say that America itself has been enslaved to the Joab spirit. We would rather banish opponents than be reconciled to them. Our tribal warfare is worse than ever. What's extraordinary about David is that he prioritizes unity. He was always looking for ways to bring God's people together across their divisions. David had a vision of Israel dwelling together in unity, and he exclaimed, how good and pleasant it is, how wonderful, how beautiful. You know, family, unity like this is precious. Unity is a wonderful gift. Unity is so precious, so important, that it's one of the last things Jesus prayed before his death. How important is it to you? How important is it to us? Is it more important than being right? Is it an utmost priority? Do we view the unity of the church as being infinitely more important than the political party of our preference winning the next election? Have we committed to praying for unity in a sustained and regular way? Do we know how to work for unity? how to put our own preferences aside and to be people who can repair what is broken and who can mend what has been torn. You remember the word devil comes from the Greek diabolos. And etymologically, that word shares a root with diabolain, which means to split or to divide. See, that's instructive that the devil is the splitter. He is dead set on splitting everything apart that was meant to be together. He loves to split up marriages and and he loves to turn parents against children and children against parents. He loves to divide cities and nations. And of course, since Jesus said his mission was firmly attached to the unity of the church, you can be sure the devil is dead set on messing with that. See, the devil loves tribal warfare among the people of God. He's cheering on all sides and doesn't really care who wins as long as the cannons are blasting. How can we be less like Joab and more like David? How can we be people of repair rather than retribution? Let's prioritize unity and look for ways to repair what is broken. Okay, so David, he laments what is lost and he repairs what is broken. Finally, we see David gather around a new center. 
Listen to chapter 5, verse 1 again. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. You know, one of the ways we often seek unity is through assimilation. We basically try to make others like us, make others agree with us. In David's story, it's remarkable that he doesn't do away with the tribal distinctions. I mean, Judah is still Judah. Benjamin is still Benjamin. The tribes don't stop being tribes. And yet in their diversity, they have a new center that gives them a new identity. In all their diversity, they are unified together around a new common king and a common kingdom. Biblical unity is not uniformity. It is not sameness. It does not mean a community where everyone is alike, everyone is the same, everyone is in total agreement about everything. The biblical vision of community from Genesis to Revelation is harmony and diversity. It's oneness in differentiation. See, we want there to be great differences among us in gifts and abilities and cultures and backgrounds and perspectives because God's vision for his community is that we would represent the diverse people of the earth. The vision is that the church would be a place where people of of different genders and classes and races and cultures, income levels, and even, even opinions can come together functioning harmoniously as one. Not uniformity, differentiated oneness, unity and diversity. See, unity by assimilation, it always sees difference as a threat. But what if we could learn to really value difference within the body, to trust that each of us has something unique and important to offer to the community, whether it be through our spiritual gifts or our cultural backgrounds or our experiences and upbringings or our personalities. See, can you look at people in the community this way even when you deeply disagree with them? Instead of seeing them as a threat, as an opponent, as someone to shut down, as someone to correct or change, can we learn to see each other as precious persons loved by God, sanctified by God in Christ with something to offer us? Could we see, could we see others as bone of our bone? and flesh of our flesh. Rowan Williams writes this, and I, and I love this passage and return to it often. He says, quote, the first thing we ought to think of when in the presence of another Christian individual or Christian community is, what is Christ giving me through this person or this group? Given that we may not always see eye to eye with other Christians we mix with, that can be hard work. And no doubt it's at least equally hard for them looking at us. But nonetheless, Jesus has brought us together precisely so that we approach one another with that degree of expectancy. It doesn't mean that you will agree with everything the other Christian says or does. Simply that you begin by asking, what is Jesus Christ giving me here and now? Close quote. Such a good question, isn't it? What is Jesus Christ giving me here and now? through this brother or sister who is very different from me, who, who might have a very different perspective than I do, who might hold very different opinions. What is Jesus Christ giving to me? You see, the tribes didn't stop being tribes. I'm sure they continued to have lots of little squabbles and disagreements with each other, and my guess is we will too. But there's a recognition of a deep unity beneath these differences. What now unites them is not their local agendas and tribal loyalties, but fidelity to a new king and a new kingdom. 
in our time, our unity around Jesus and his kingdom and our citizenship in the city of God, family, it must transcend our earthly citizenship and tribal loyalties. Let Jesus be the bedrock foundation of your identity more than anything else. In our world of identity politics and cancel culture, it is so easy to think of yourself as defined by all the identity categories around us, right and left, liberal and conservative, Democrat or Republican, pro-vax, anti-vax. We put ourselves in these groups and we define others in this way. Remember when Jesus gathered his disciples, he had among them Simon the Zealot, a radical conservative looking to overthrow the government, and also Matthew the tax collector, a social liberal working for the state. I mean, these men had drastically different visions of how God's kingdom was going to come. Apart from Jesus, these guys would have hated each other. They never would have been part of the same community, but Jesus gave them a different foundation. Their life in Christ and with Christ was more central to their identity than anything else. And so they refused to let their politics come between their relationship with Jesus and with each other. When you find yourself separating, pulling back, judging, condemning, snubbing, needing to grind your axe, ask yourself, who am I? What is my identity? Am I one who bears the image of God and for whom Jesus died? And ask yourself, who are they? Are they not image bearers loved by God in Christ? Are they not bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh? You know, there are so many calls for unity these days. Sometimes people say the key is more tolerance and acceptance. If we can just learn to accept and love each other, that will get us to unity. Um, Sometimes the answer is more education. If we could only get the right information to everyone, then that would create unity. Scripture has a deeper, more radical proposal. It says that we are so turned inward upon ourselves. Our hearts are so poisoned by sin that conflict and racism and hatred and self-preservation and stubborn, self-seeking pride, they're just kind of wired into us. Which means that conflict and disunity is never merely a social problem, it's always a spiritual problem. What unity first requires is not tolerance, not education, not hard work, but rescue. We need God to accomplish in us what we can't change about ourselves. It must come as a gift. And family, this is exactly what scripture says has happened. This unity is what Jesus has accomplished for us. In talking about the racial and cultural conflict between the Jewish and Gentile factions in the early church, Paul says this, Christ himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Did you hear that? Jesus, through his death on the cross, accomplished unity for us. He first tore down the barrier that separated us from God, and then he tore down the barrier that separated us from one another. In doing so, he made a new community based on grace alone. Grace alone. Not race, not class, not status, not social standing, not political preference, but grace, period. 
And now Paul says, maintain it. Guard it as a gift that's already been given. Protect it. Nurture it. Twenty years ago, there was a Mardi Gras celebration in downtown Seattle, and there was a mob. A woman was attacked, and a young man named Chris Kime saw her being attacked and ran to help her. The mob turned on him and beat him to death. He died. A man named Larry Levinson was watching the Mardi Gras riots on TV from his bed in a Seattle hospital. Uh, He only had a few days of life left. His heart was failing him, and he was dismayed by the violence that he saw on the television. The next day, though, he was notified that the doctors had a new heart for him. He was getting a second chance of life. Guess whose heart it was? It was Chris Kimes' heart. Turns out Chris was an organ donor, and many people all over Seattle received his organs when he died. Like within days of his death, his organs were were going into other bodies. Well, later on, Chris's mother found out who all the other organ recipients were, and she got them all together for a dinner. At this dinner, she was able to put her ear on Leary's chest and listen to her son's heart. None of the recipients knew each other. The only thing they had in common was Chris Kime. And they feasted together to remember that through this young man, that though this young man died tragically at the hands of a mob, he gave them life. And isn't that a picture of the church? We are a group of people with different stories and all kinds of different backgrounds Yet when we were dead and in our sin, Jesus' own death at the hands of a mob saved us, rescued us, and made us united in his one body, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. This is a king who did not just set a table for his enemies, but died for his enemies, gave his own life and body for his enemies to create a new unified community of grace. Family, he is our life, and he is our unity, and we have the resources we need in him to love one another, to forgive one another, to bear patiently with one another, to defer to one another, to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, not in ourselves, but because we've submitted to a common king. Thanks be to God. Amen.